So, uh, earlier this March, when I was invited uh, to speak, I, I, I preached a wonderful sermon. I love it. I called Let It Be. And uh, I don't know if you heard it, but if you haven't, uh, it, it might be worth listening to if you can find it uh, in the archives again. But in that sermon, I suggested that three of the primary attributes of Jesus' followers are uh, that we're working towards reconciliation, that uh, we are uh, growing in compassion, and that we're growing in wisdom or understanding. So that those are three primary things. And I absolutely uh, believe that. I'm committed to that in my own life. And so this morning I thought I would share um, uh, some reflection on what it is that I mean by reflection or uh, reconciliation. And then next week we'll look at compassion. And uh, then on July 17th, uh, the third Sunday, I'll be speaking. Well, we'll look at wisdom or understanding. And, and I want to suggest that these are not three isolated elements or things, but they're all very much intertwined in our project of uh, attempting to follow Jesus. And so this week I uh, wanted to, to spend some time talking about uh, the need for reconciliation in the, in, in the world that you and I live in. And I could think of no better text than the one David so uh, joyously uh, read to us this morning from the book of Beginnings, the book of Genesis. And in that text, uh, I, I, I find the, the question in that text so uh, profound. It's existentially profound. And uh, the question is, where are you? Rabbi Abraham Heschel, who is a brilliant writer of the 20th century, said that uh, it's difficult to remain from the immune anxiety of that question. Where do we come from? Where are we? Where are we going? I mean, that to me, that typifies all the terrifying things that we go through. Why am I here? Why am I alive? Why am I alive now? Why am I alive in this place, in this time? What is I'm doing here? How should I be alive? I mean, these are questions that plague every human being. And all of the great faith traditions and religions work at giving us answers to this profound question. Where are we? What are we doing? And in the, the text, what I love prior uh, and I think this story, this archetypal mythological story that's handed down to us from our faith ancestors is absolutely brilliant. And the, the thought that somebody or some people three, 4,000 years ago crafted this story to try and explain what it is we feel as human beings, I just find absolutely fascinating. The, the way the story unfolds for us, uh, the man and the woman are living in paradise and they are in harmony with the creator and with each other and all of creation. It's all in harmony. And then in the craziness of the, of the thing, the devil comes and preaches and converts them from harmony to disharmony. And, and, and the way the story tells it that they are, are absolutely just in attuned in the flow with God and all of creation. 
and they listen to these words of the evil one and, and disharmony breaks out. And I think what this story captures for me is if you can imagine, uh, I don't know how many millennia ago, human beings became aware of myself, my consciousness, that I have a self, that I choose and the choices I make are uh, have an impact and an influence on the, on the world around me. And how shocking that must have been and to try to give language to that. And that's what this story is trying to do. Uh, Carl Jung, the very famous psychologist, says that this story really highlights the, the real problem. He, he says there's no problems without consciousness. Consciousness, it seems, comes with a cost, the loss of innocence. And I think what Dr. Jung is, is referring to, imagine all the other animals on the planet go about and they do what they do, and they're not self-reflective about it. If a lion's hungry, it kills a gazelle, it eats it. It doesn't feel bad. Oh, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. What have I caused? That gazelle was a mother and had children. What have I? A lion doesn't think about lion. I'm hungry, I eat. That's what we do. And so to live in the animal kingdom is just to, it's not self-reflective, but we are. And how do we deal with that? And Dr. Jung says that is the source of all our problems. And not only is it the loss of innocence, but along comes with this awareness of self and that I am and I now know good from evil and I know right from wrong and I know the, and the way the story tells it, once they learned this, they realized how naked they were, how lacking they were, and they hid. They hid from the creator that had made them. They, they hid from each other. They hid from all of creation because as the story unfolds, uh, they have to leave paradise. And they hid from themselves. And I think this so powerfully illustrates to us our human condition. We're in hiding. And my work as a hospice chaplain, I see that on a daily basis. I visit people that are near death and they can't hide anymore with, with money and uh, possessions position and all that stuff and we realize how naked and afraid we really all are. And along with this loss of innocence, Dr. Jung says we also have the experience of being alone. I, I love in, in, in Genesis the first not good in the whole Bible is that the human being was alone. The way the story unfolds for us uh, God saw the human being was alone and that that was not good. The first not good. Everything else in the Bible was good. God created the light. It was good. God created the water. It was good. But the first not good was that the human being was alone. And so God created a partner for the human being out of the, the human's own bone and flesh so that they could be partnered together. They could be one. They could be community. They could have relationship. They could nurture each other. They could love each other. That was the design. But after this awareness of consciousness, this eating of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, as this self-reflecting stuff comes in, we realize again, we are alone. And the man and the woman hid from the creator, they hid from each other, 
And I suggest we are all in hiding and that that is the human condition. And I want to remind you, I find it so interesting that this conversion from harmony in tune with the creator and the universe and creation to disharmony came about at the preaching of the devil. So beware of everybody that tries to convert you. And they might not be trying to convert you to something better than what you've already got. Well, the result is, even in the story that uh, David shared with us last week when he preached uh, to us, uh, the story of Jesus and his followers and how even Jesus's, two of Jesus's best friends, James and John, wanted to call down thunder and lightning on the Samaritans and zap them. And our response to this feeling of aloneness, this, this hiding that we do, is we look for power to prove that we're right. And we want a, a form of reconciliation, but the way the reconciliation works is we'll be reconciled if you do things my way, if, if you behave the way I want you to. If you agree with me, then we can have reconciliation. Well, that, that's not the way. So what many people come to spirituality for is for divine power to help them. They, uh, Jesus, we, often we want a Jesus who is a superman that can come to our rescue, prove how right we are and everybody else is wrong, and restore truth, justice, and the American way. We want superman. Uh, or we want a genie. We want power will uh, rub the Bible three times and say, in the name of Jesus and then God, get us what we want and zap our enemies and show them how wrong they are and how silly they are and they'll see how wise we are and, the, and, 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 and we want a genie rather than a, a God because, well, a genie does what you tell it to. <laughs> I mean, a genie is supernatural power that shows up and then helps you out and then you stick them back in the bottle and we don't hear from them until we want them again. But a, a god is different than a genie. A, a god has the presumption to tell us what to do. Oh, we don't like that. So, so what many people want is supernatural power. And I don't think that's so much what God is about. Now, the creator's response in this story that David read, that I, I find so fascinating, is... The creator comes and says, where are you? The depiction of the creator in this story is apparent that his child has been stolen, kidnapped. And the screaming, where are you? The, the pain of loss and separation in that where are you for me is unbearable and universe shaking cry, where are you? In fact, uh, Rabbi Heschel, again, in his most famous book, it's called God in Search of Man. And, and Rabbi Heschel wrote in a time where language wasn't as sensitive uh, to the genders as we are today. So I would say it's God in search of men and women. Though For, for Rabbi Heschel, a, a genius in, in biblical study, the whole Bible can be summed up in that one phrase, God in search of human beings, of men, of men and women and all of us. And uh, I have been a student of the Bible for more than 50 years. I've read the, the book cover to cover at least six times. I've studied the book. I've memorized portions of it. 
And if I, I feel I'm on very safe ground when I can suggest to you, my sisters, my brothers, my friends, that there is nothing, at least if the Bible's to be believed, if, if, if we do that, there is nothing more important to God in the Bible than relationships. There is nothing, nothing. The whole book, cover to cover, is about relationships, how to mend them, how to heal them, how to engage them, how to encourage them. And I think reconciliation is such a, a huge part of that. God wants reconciliation between us and the Creator, between us and each other, between us and all of the earth, the other sentient beings on the planet, and us and ourselves. The whole book is given to us to help us in this process of reconciliation. And so what are the practical implications then for us as a, as a faith community, as people that at least give lip service to the desire to want to try to follow Jesus in the 21st century in Ashland, Oregon? What are the implications for us as Jesus followers? Well, I would humbly suggest that the primary purpose of our existence is to create a sanctuary of reconciliation. I, I, I just don't see any other focus. But a sanctuary where, where all of us and others can come and, and we can be reconciled, not only to the Creator or, or to each other or to the rest of the environment around us, the creation, but to ourselves to create a refuge, a sanctuary, where reconciliation can occur. I suggest this is a primary, if not the primary purpose, of what we might call a church. And so how do we do that? How do we create such a refuge or a sanctuary? Well, some suggestions, simple suggestions I would have. One of the first things I suggest to us is that when we come to this place, this sanctuary, that we check our verbal weapons at the door. And uh, that, unlike the devil, we not try to convert each other to something that could be worse or not as good. And that we refrain from shaming language and that we refrain from othering people that they're different or their ideas are stupid, that we refrain from trying to call down supernatural power, as David said to us last week, to zap our enemies, and that we really engage in deep listening to each other. You've heard me, a phrase I use a lot is, I'm just so weary of monologues with witnesses, and that we just stop doing that. We stop conversations with that, that have, are filled with yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And that we have real comment, that we engage in conversations where we really try to listen to each other, to hear each other's stories, to create a space where we could come out of hiding, that we could drop our fig leaves and, and come out of behind of what we're afraid makes us feel naked or less than. And that we could share that with one another and, and become community and, 
and, and work at healing each other and accepting each other and loving each other and, and, and growing together where conversations aren't about converting but are about how can we all grow into more wholeness. That's what I think a, a sanctuary of reconciliation is like. Now, one of the, the great helps for me in this process is, has been to hear the words of a, a, a man that, that worked in uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after the years of apartheid. Um, on one of her episodes on the NPR program On Being, Krista Trippett, who is the host, she had a guest, uh, Charles Villa Vincencio, who worked on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission after President Mandela was elected to try to restore some sense of, of racial wholeness or community after years of apartheid. And, and this is what uh, Mr. Villa Vincencio told Krista Trippett on that program. He said, some people in the early days of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, somehow thought that what was being suggested was that if we just all told the truth, well, we'll be reconciled. You know, as simple as that. If you do A, you get B. Which is absolute nonsense. Let me put it to you this way. If we want to talk about justice, or we want to talk about truth, outside of the desire to be reconciled, outside of the desire of healing relationships, outside of the desire to move on, if it's outside of that, then truth and justice can be very destructive. And they can be very vindictive. And he goes on to say, I think one of the fundamental philosophical roots of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was founded in the notion of Ubuntu. Ubuntu, loosely translated, means humanity. It means to live together. It's a concept that says, I am through you, and you are through me. It's only as we engage in truthful dialogue and in a quest for building relationships that we can grow as individual people. So to the extent that I am estranged from you, I am less than human. And to the extent that you are estranged from me, you are less than human. It's a relationship that's required. And he concludes, he said, I came away from the commission learning two things. That is, one, human beings in certain circumstances are capable of the most outrageously treacherous deeds. And you know what else I learned? Even from those perpetrators, and he says, I've met some bad ones, of all kinds of the political persuasions, that when you sit down and you talk to them, they're human beings. I don't know any other way forward in the world you and I live in but then try to create a space where we can honor each other, learn from each other, grow together, realize we don't have the solutions, we don't have all the answers. But I, I just don't know how else to be in the world and be a Christian.
What I find so remarkable about the, the story that David read to us this morning was the response of, of the creator in that story. After the, the man and woman, the way the story unfolds, decided that they wanted to be autonomous, to know good and bad, right and wrong, for themselves to be self-reflective beings, the Holy One comes and says, where are you? Where are you? Did God come to find them and to find us? That's the story of the Bible, and I think that's the story of Jesus. Jesus came not only to teach reconciliation, but to be the reconciler. Jesus is God's most direct communication of the importance of reconciliation. To demonstrate in the most dramatic fashion that we are worth looking for, that God desires us in relationship with us. And so maybe, just maybe, we are most God-like when we simply reach out to another lost, frightened, naked, hurting soul and say, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you.